I was listening to a podcast a couple weeks ago, and I can't really honestly tell you the name of the guy that they were interviewing, but I remember his story. Uh, he, he, he was some whiz kid, smart, smart guy. He's like in chemical engineering, one of those kind of fields. But then he decided, you know, he came to Christ and he wanted to do something with his life. So he went to seminary. And then after that, he decided, <laughs> you know, this guy, very, very smart, decided what he really needed to study was philosophy in order to be able to talk to people philosophically, apologetically about the Christian faith. And so he got a doctorate in philosophy. And, uh, and he was saying something that I found really interesting. He said, among philosophers, now we're talking about the most rarefied group of individuals who you know, attempt to use pure logic and all this, that there is no atheist philosopher worth his salt who would say there is no evidence for the existence of God. He said, among philosophers, that's, yeah, that's not even thought of. Now, there are atheist philosophers, and they will build a case for why they say there's no God but they are completely aware that there is all sorts of evidence that they have to refute to get to that point of trying to prove atheism. Isn't that interesting? So when you read one of these people, and this was kind of his point, he said, you know, when you see somebody on Facebook or on TV and they get up there and, oh, you know, Christians are superstitious, uh, they might as well worship a flying spaghetti monster because it's so stupid. There's just no support for that whatsoever. He says, when you hear somebody say that, they're either ignorant, which is probably the case, or they're just openly trying to deceive you. That those that, that, that know the situation know that you, that you cannot say that there is no evidence whatsoever. What about people, though, that arrive to the, to the whole question with a curiosity? They're, they're not bent on proving atheism. They, they, they are willing to look at the evidence. Does God ever use evidence? Or does, does God expect everyone to arrive at, at the, the whole idea of, the, of faith and the gospel with the idea of blind faith? There's, you know, like against, all, like against all evidence to the contrary, even though everything out there suggests there is no God, I have to just jump over and go, yeah, I'm going to say there is one anyway. Is that what's required? I don't think so. I don't think so. Of course the Holy Spirit has to draw us. There, there is a work of God in the heart that is mysterious and beyond our comprehension. But the fact that God has shown us evidence and even uses evidence is very clear from the Scripture. And uh, so here's our big idea today. The evidence for the gospel is strong. As a believer, that should encourage you. I hope by the end of uh, today you'll be even more encouraged than you already were in this regard. And if you're not a believer, I would just ask you to just hold judgment for a moment. Think about it. If you're here today, I assume you're, you're already open-minded on some level, but just listen and, and think about it. I'm not suggesting that I'm bringing you all the evidence that exists. I'm gonna bring you three evidences from the text. And in fact, last time we saw an evidence, which of course we've, we've moved beyond uh, for this week. By the way, I did steal the uh, title today. Did anybody recognize that title, More Evidence That Demands a Verdict? Because Josh McDowell wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict, then his second book was more, anyway, um, I thought it fit the, the, the purpose here. Anyway, uh, here's three evidences. The first one, consider John the Baptist. That might not immediately be plain as to why that's, uh, why that's particularly important, but if you really think about it, would we know anything about John the Baptist if it weren't for Jesus? I mean, 2,000 years later, 
The guy was beheaded by Herod. Would we even remember who he was? The people that Paul is speaking to in Antioch would have absolutely known who he was talking about. 2,000 years later, I doubt we would have. It's a little bit like the Brenda Lee um, Beatles phenomenon. You know that old, have you ever stopped? How many remember who Brenda Lee was, okay? How many remember the Beatles? Okay, a few more, yes? But in 1962, did you know that the Beatles in Hamburg, Germany opened for Brenda Lee? She was the big headliner. She was the one that people knew. Nobody had ever heard of the Beatles, per se, except the people right around Hamburg, but she sort of gave them a certain kind of street cred. But there's a little bit of that kind of thing going on in this situation because people at that point had heard of John the Baptist and they'd heard less, perhaps, about Jesus. And Paul has shown the people in the synagogue in Antioch that, that, that God's goodness, you know, we looked at this last time, that God's goodness, sort of like a funnel, should have led them to, to the idea of, of expecting Christ, of expecting Jesus. And now he brings John the Baptist into it, kind of a current, he sort of looked at the past in the one light, and now he moves on to kind of what one might almost call current events. He's asking them about, or, or, or to, to consider something that's right at hand. John had a phenomenal impact on Israel, one that I don't think we can completely appreciate, but I believe the people in Antioch knew plenty uh, of what there was to know about John. Look at this verse from Mark. It says, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. It was viral. John was a viral phenomenon at that time. Uh, more so, uh, you know, I, they didn't have TikTok back then, but uh, more, you, you name it, uh, I don't care what it is, go to YouTube and, and talk about maybe Baby Shark video. That's what, up to uh, 10 billion views now? It, it is, literally up to 10 billion. Now, there's only like a thousand kids that have ever watched it, but they've watched it like that many times. Um, <laughs> it's a very, very big deal. But, jo- I mean, John the Baptist was viral in his day. And, and when Paul references him, he knows his listeners know who he's talking about, that they're absolutely engaged. He says, before his coming, and this is of Christ's coming, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people in Israel. Even in far-off Antioch, they understood there, this. There was this weird guy, this weird person named John, who, who wore camel hair, you know, clothing, and ate locusts and honey, and he was down by the Jordan River, and he, was, and he was a fire and brimstone kind of preacher, and he was telling the Jewish people that it wasn't just the, uh, the pagans and the, and the converts that needed to come and be baptized, but it was the Jewish people themselves. They needed to repent. They needed to be prepared for what God was going to do. To talk to the people in Antioch about John the Baptist would be a little bit like mentioning, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, Billy Graham. Uh, How many remember Billy Graham? We're moving on pretty quickly these days. For those of us who remember Billy Graham, it's like, what do you mean who remembers Billy Graham? There are young people today that do not know who I'm talking about. But that was a phenomenon. If you mention Billy Graham's name in certain places and say, hey, you remember that guy? You remember what he was all about? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, he came to the capital city in my state, and there was a big, big to-do, and he filled out an entire stadium, and thousands upon thousands of people came, and hundreds and hundreds of people went forward. People remember that. The people in Antioch remember that. Look at verse 26 and where, uh, where Paul takes them. 
He says, And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. I want you to notice a couple things there. Uh, First of all, he mentions that John was finishing his course. And that is an undeniable truth that the people in Antioch would have immediately understood. How did John finish his course? Do you remember that? Was it the edge of a blade by Herod? And these people would have known that. Now, what was the connection to Jesus? They, they, they were not aware of the connection yet to Jesus, and, and, and Paul is going to explain that. But they knew that John had somehow come to a very abrupt end, and nobody had ever explained it to them. Consider that for a minute. They're in Antioch. They've heard about John the Baptist. They know all that he did. They know what a huge phenomenon, but they do not know why was he killed. I mean, yeah, they know that it was Herod, and there was intrigue, and all of that sort of thing. But, but why? Why? It's like asking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. How many know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was? He was a German pastor, theologian. He engaged in a plot to kill Hitler. Um, he was, he was you know, a co-conspirator to kill Hitler, and he was arrested, and, and, and he was killed just so, it was so close to the end of the war. But they finally, you know, they finally did, did the deed and put him to death, and people look at that and go, why? Why did that have to happen? People looked at John the Baptist and thought, what was that about? What did he come to do? Did he accomplish it? What was that for? And Paul reminds them of two truths. On the one hand, that John denied being that guy. It's like, I'm not that guy. Are you that guy? No, I'm not that guy. That was, that was something he was absolutely um, uh, certain about. And then after that, after this, um, he says that one would come of whom he was not willing, uh, uh, worthy to untie his sandal. We've heard that before in the Gospels, right? It's an interesting comment. Um, John did not consider himself worthy to untie Jesus' sandal. Now, obviously, that's a metaphor, um, but there's an interesting background to that. We have um, writings from shortly after the time of Christ uh, from rabbis, and uh, and there was a rabbi who commented about what it was like uh, to have a disciple if you were a rabbi and you had students. See, back in the day, you didn't go away to university and and borrow like your life savings against you know um, what the degree. You you went to a rabbi, and then you followed the rabbi. And part of the deal, part of the negotiation in terms of I don't know how much you had to pay him, um, but part of the deal was you were his servant. A rabbi could treat his disciple as a servant. However, there was one caveat. You could not make a disciple untie your sandal and wash your feet. That was where you do the line. It's like you're a servant in every respect. You're not much more than a servant disciple, but I won't make you wash my feet. That was the one thing a disciple didn't have to do. And so John is saying, not only am I not worthy to be a disciple, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest servant in the household who gets that job because that is how great the one is that's coming after me. The ministry of John was not about John. He was prepping them, getting them ready for one who would come after him. And and I don't know if this is so persuasive to us, but think of how powerful this would have been for the people in Antioch. Like there had been this question mark hanging over. Why was John there? 
And then Paul comes and says, you remember, this is what happened. Yeah, he died. Do you remember what he said leading up to that? He said there was one coming, and I'm going to point you to that person. So John the Baptist is actually a very powerful point of evidence. Second evidence here is Jerusalem's reaction. Consider Jerusalem's reaction. You know, sometimes you can tell more from a reaction about the thing being reacted to than the reaction itself. Are you tracking with me there? A reaction tells you a lot about the thing. I, I know that's true in chemistry. Hey, you, you, you don't know the thing, but you can tell by the reaction what the thing is. That's the extent of my chemistry knowledge right there. I'll give you a homelier example. Say you have a neighbor. We'll call your neighbor Ralph. Ralph comes over one day and he says, hey, you know what, uh, weird, weird thing happened to me, neighbor. Uh, I was out digging a hole uh, to put in an ornamental plum. It's going to look really pretty. I think you'll like it. Uh, from where you're at, you'll get a nice view of it. But uh, I was digging a hole, and I got up about two feet, and I hit something. And I, I'm like, what? And I, and I looked down, and it's like a capsule. And I opened it up, and inside there was the desiccated remains of an ancient alien. Like, Ralph, man, buddy, what, what exactly is wrong with you? <laughs> Would that that'd be your thought, right? However, what if shortly after he tells you this, 20 black SUVs roll up to Ralph's home, surround it, men jump out with sunglasses, and then there's a bunch of men with white, you know, the white you know, hazmat type suits are going in, and they put a tent in the guy's backyard, you hear heavy machinery going on, and lights lighting up the night, and then when they leave, there's just a big hole in Ralph's yard, and you never hear of Ralph again. What are you going to think? Huh? Ah, uh -huh, right? All of a sudden, that starts to sound more plausible. Um, yeah, Paul writes, Brothers, sons of the fam uh, family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. There are two types of people in the synagogue that he's speaking to. He's talking to Jews. He's talking to God-fearers. God-fearers are the pagans that were near conversion, almost Jews, not quite yet, not the full extent, but they, but they fear the God of the Scripture. Paul wants them to know that that good, encouraging word that they had asked for was a word uh, that was a message of salvation. And then he points them to, the, to what the people in Jerusalem did. He gets them to see the reaction of the people to Christ. And again, what we see in their reaction tells us a lot about what they're reacting to. For those who live, uh, live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So Paul is really bold at this point, I think. If you're an expat, you know what I mean when I say an expat, right? Somebody that's living no longer in their home country, you're living outside, and that's what the people, Jews in Antioch, would have been, expats. Uh, how would you feel about your leadership back at Jerusalem? I don't know, for sure, but I have a feeling they would have been sensitive. Like, whoa, whoa, that's our, that's our temple back there in the good old homeland. You know, don't say anything bad about the temple and don't say anything bad about the, the high priest and the people. That, I would have thought they would have been very sensitive. And Paul, I think Paul is sensitive. He doesn't come right out and just condemn the high priest. Rather, um, he kind of says they just didn't get it. They didn't understand what they were dealing with. Even though they had John the Baptist's message preparing them for Jesus, when Jesus gets there, they didn't comprehend it. 
They were blind. And there's a twist of irony because Paul says um, that, that, um, that they read these prophecies every Sabbath. Where is Paul saying this and what has just happened? Paul is in a synagogue. It's on the Sabbath. They've just read the law and the prophets. And so Paul's like, you know this thing we're doing right now? That should have been enough. The people in Jerusalem should have gotten it because it's read every week like we just did. And yet they did not understand it. It's an ironic twist that the very leaders of God's people in Jerusalem end up fulfilling the very promises that they didn't recognize. Think about it. If you go back to the Old Testament and you just work your way through, the whole Old Testament points this way, doesn't it? How many times did the Jewish people reject the very leaders that God sent them? They almost killed Moses. You know? Had God not been so strong with Moses throughout and the plagues and all, and, and all through the wilderness, they would have killed Moses. And then with every successive leader and, and prophet, they, they end up stoning the, the prophets again and again. They end up fulfilling the very prophecies of Christ's coming. And next it says, And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Jesus was an absolutely innocent victim. They found no fault in him. They sent him to Herod. What did Herod do? Herod just mocked him. But he didn't find him guilty of anything. They sent him to Pilate. Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. They couldn't get their witnesses even to agree in condemning him. But then, what do they do? They, they turn him over to the Romans for the specific purpose of having him crucified. The crowd literally shouts out to crucify him. Now, that's the black SUVs right there. That's the, that's the moment where you stop and you go, whoa, what, what on earth could have led to that? They treated Jesus... This, this innocent um, rabbi, this traveling rabbi, this prophet, whatever they thought he was, they treated him like public enemy number one. And Paul concludes, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Why does uh, Paul call the cross a tree? Was Paul contradicting the gospels that specifically mention a cross? No, the cross is like a metaphor of the tree, which is mentioned in Deuteronomy. If a person was put to death on a tree, hung by a tree, they were considered to be cursed. And that just points again to how over the top they went in condemning Jesus. They wanted him to die in the worst possible way. And Jesus becomes a curse in order that we might become the righteousness of God. And when they'd done their worst, they took him down, and they laid him in a tomb. Now, I don't know if that hit you at all, but it says they laid him in the tomb. Um, who laid him in the tomb? Class, do you remember, guys? Joseph of Arimathea. Well, he was one of them, wasn't he? He, he was a secret disciple of Jesus. He hadn't agreed with the verdict but he was part of the them. He was part of their council. And so he was, he was laid in the grave, and even, uh, as it says in the Scripture, with the wicked and with the rich in death. So sum this point up at this point. What is Paul telling us? He's saying that the rulers in Jerusalem 
with the approval of the people, betrayed Jesus to the Romans in accordance with the prophecies that this, and, and that this unmistakably uh, disproportionate act of justice shows that he is who he says he is. And that may seem um, maybe not like a winning argument to us, but it was a powerful argument to them. Why had they done this to Jesus? Why had they put him to death? What harm had he done? Everyone knew his reputation, that Jesus was a man who went about doing good, healing the sick, raising the dead, driving out demons, preaching the gospel to the poor. And yet, look what they did to him. Let's go back to Ralph for just a second. Um, This would have had to have been before they disappeared him, but uh, say a couple months before that, uh, you'd gone over to Ralph's home, and everywhere you looked, you'd heard some banging noises, so you go over there. Everywhere you look, there's like two-foot holes in the wall all around the house, and and he's still holding the shotgun with a little bit of smoke, you know, coming out of the end of the barrel. And you're like, Ralph, what did you do? And Ralph says, I had a fly problem. What What would you say? Man, Ralph... Either there's something really, really wrong with you, or that was one heck of a fly that you were dealing with. Your reaction, right? And, and so this reaction, again, it points to who Jesus is. Third and final, and maybe the best, consider his resurrection. There are a lot of different ways of doing apologetics. Apologetics, for those that don't know, that's sort of the, the, the practice of, uh, of explaining and defending the truth claims of Christianity. And there are a lot of different ways of going about it. And some people like to start with uh, creation because there's so much evidence of fine-tuning and, and of uh, evidence for a creator. Uh, even modern-day scientists will admit that. They'll say, yeah, we see the evidence, and they'll try to come up with this idea of multiverses and whatnot and stuff like that to try to get around it because there's clear evidence of design. But another way of going about apologetics is to look at the empty tomb. And I think that's probably a good place to start. I think that there's a lot of merit, and that's what Paul does. He says, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Think about the birth of the church. The rulers of Jerusalem did their thing. They killed Jesus. They laid him into the tomb. The guards sealed the tomb. Three days later, the stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. God raised Jesus from the dead, and immediately, over a span of 40 days, he shows himself to, his, to uh, the disciples. Within 50 days of his death, burial, and resurrection, you have Pentecost. You have this, this, this group of disciples that were scared and frightened and had hidden themselves. All at once, they, they stand out, and they preach to the people, and the church explodes in growth. Thousands and thousands come to the faith. Paul can stand there, and, and say, look, Jesus was raised from the dead, the tomb was empty, and these men saw him. He knew the apostles. Barnabas is standing there. Barnabas was closely acquainted and associated with the apostles. He could tell their stories to the people of, of the resurrection occurrences. And then we know that those witnesses who saw him one by one were arrested and beaten and eventually put to death. All the while, they kept bearing testimony to the fact that he had been raised from the dead. They were witnesses of a risen, living Christ. 
Paul could say that without fear of contradiction. In fact, this, this is very similar to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the order uh, of the events and everything and, and the mentioning of the, uh, of the witnesses is very similar to what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, this is my gospel. This is the gospel I preached to you. This is the gospel you believed upon which you took your stand by which you're being saved. The only difference is there, Paul mentions that he too witnessed the resurrected Christ. Not during that, that time period before the ascension, but after the fact, Paul says, as one born out of time. Paul boldly declares, without fear of contradiction, that God raised him from the dead. And to this day, that is not only our apologetic, but that's our message, isn't it? Any, any kind of, there have always been people that have come along and tried to um, sort of denude Christianity of any of the miraculous nature of it, fearing that people would think, well, we don't want to be superstitious. We don't want to believe in things that science can't fully explain. So there always, there's always been people, a certain liberal set of people that have come along and said, well, you know, Jesus was a good teacher. He was like, um, I don't know, Gandhi or something like that. And, and they want to be satisfied with that. But the truth in which we believe, the truth that we believe that by which we are saved is that the innocent, righteous Lamb of God was put to death on a Roman cross by the rulers in Jerusalem having betrayed him. He was laid in a tomb. He rose on the third day, not, not simply to show us a way of living. And of course, Christ did show us a way of living. But he did that in order to save us from our sins, to purchase our salvation for all those who repent and believe. The empty tomb is the proof, and any so-called Christian that denies that is denying the very heart of our faith. Well, we're not quite done with all the proofs uh, in this greater passage. We, as I said, we looked at one last week. We're looking, looking at three. We'll continue next week. But we're certainly at the end of where we can get in one sermon. But um, what have we seen today? Three key proofs that Paul mentions. You've got John the Baptist. Maybe that to us now, after the fact, is a little bit like the Brenda Lee Beatles thing. But trust me, it was a powerful, meaningful uh, testimony at the time. You have the whole reaction, how they, how they went about dealing with Jesus was just beyond understanding. Like why? Why would they treat him the way that they did unless there was something incredibly different about him? And most of all, of course, you have the resurrection from the dead, the empty tomb, and the witnesses. So Christian, don't, don't let yourself get discouraged. This happens so much. Do not let yourself be, be thrown into doubt by these people who come along and they're, you know what? They're... They're not philosophers, are they? <laughs> These people that, that, that trash you on Facebook, yeah, I'm betting most of them, if they have, maybe they got a philosophy minor out here at Barton or something, but, um, but, but seriously, they're, they're, not, they're not running around with a PhD in philosophy. They're, they're, the, the people that tell you you're an idiot, that you don't know what you're, that, that you believe in irrational things, they are either ignorant or they are deceptive. There are reasons, strong reasons, that support us in what we believe. And if you're not a believer, what I can say to you is this. I can't argue you into the kingdom of God. That's not a thing. It doesn't really work that way. What I can do, though, is, is hold out to you these evidences and ask you to open your heart and open your mind. Because if these things are true, then it absolutely makes a, a, a difference to your entire existential, to your existence. 
to your soul. We are saying that the God who made the universe sent his only begotten son into this world to save the world. That Jesus Christ came, he lived in in that area uh, of what we call Palestine. He lived in that area and and he went about doing good and that that he was betrayed by his people. He was handed over to the Romans. He lived in space and time. They took him outside of Jerusalem to an actual place, an actual spot, and he was crucified there. He died. They, they ran him through with a Roman spear. Blood and water, you know, gushed from his side. They took his cold, lifeless body, and they put it in a tomb, and he lay there for three days, and on the third day, he rose from the dead. He showed himself to nearly 500 of his brethren, most of whom went on then, and died for what they believed because they had seen him. They knew that he was risen. This message of the gospel is the message that we preach to you. Even today, 2,000 years later, if you hear this, if you humble yourself before God and you believe that same gospel of the risen Christ, you shall be saved. It is a message of salvation for anyone who will repent and believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is clear and it's helpful to us. Lord, we're confused at times by voices that come claiming that we're irrational, claiming that we don't um, believe in something that's, that's believable. And, um, and Lord, we know, it's, we know it is believable. We know that there are witnesses, that there's testimony. We have the testimony of John the Baptist. We have the testimony of all who saw him. And we just have this conspicuously weird reaction that they would do so, such a, a horrible thing to, to a good man. And it speaks to who that good man actually was. And Lord, we are thankful, thankful that we've come to hear the gospel. And most of all, Lord, that you've opened our eyes to believe it and see it and understand it. And we pray that you would do that work in the heart of somebody, someone that hears this today, that you would turn them to yourself, turn them to um, that message of salvation, and that today they would repent and believe and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.